it was, yeah. The worship team today was excellent, so I just want to say thanks to Ben and, and everybody else. Thank you all so much for that. It's just, it's consistently good, but uh, every once in a while I just like to give a shout out. So hey, I want to say, I want to give a special welcome to kids. Uh, welcome kids. If you're, if you're here, if you're participating, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we believe that uh, kids don't have a junior-sized Holy Spirit. And so it's important for them to be welcomed in to the worship gathering, uh, Big People's Church. It's, it's, uh, they're fully welcome to be here and to learn alongside with us. We think, uh, I mean, have you ever heard, heard a kid, uh, a, a child say something like uniquely profound and you're like, what, where did you even get that? That is way beyond what I even could come up with. Um, I think a lot of times that's just the Holy Spirit. Uh, speaking through them to you, and so we, we welcome their wisdom and their participation in, in what we're doing. So we are, we're in the book of Ephesians. Um, we're going to start chapter 4 today, and it's interesting because when you look at the book of Ephesians and compare it with the other letters that Paul has written, um, it follows a similar structure. And so today we're going to be talking about everybody gets a gift. Everybody gets a gift. And we're going to, you'll, you'll see a, a, a tone shift in the book of Ephesians today in chapter 4 because of the way that Paul structures his letters. Usually his letters start out saying greetings in the name of God, the, the most high, the most holy, the most mighty, the most glorious Father. Then he follows it up with praise be to Jesus for his gracious gift of salvation. And then he usually in there turns and he says for the love that that is holy, uh, cut it out, you weirdos. What are you doing? You need to shape up and live out the gospel, apply it to your lives, please. And then he f- uh, finishes most every letter with uh, Timothy says, hey. And so that's the structure of the letter. That's why it's going to feel kind of like a turn today where he starts to apply the gospel to the lives of the Ephesians and says, here's how we're going to walk this out together. Okay? Um, in, uh, in the book of Ephesians... You'll notice that Paul isn't really addressing a specific problem like he does in a lot of letters. Did you know that most of the letters in the New Testament are written to a church or to an individual or a group of people because they're having problems? There's something going on that Paul is apostolically, as a father, as someone who possibly planted the church, is stepping in to correct. Ephesians isn't really like that. It's a very unique book because there's not an identifiable problem at this time, Ben last week mentioned that later in a revelation, Jesus writes a letter to the church of Ephesus saying that they've lost their first love, so we know problems had developed. But at this point in time, uh, in this life stage of their church, there's not identifiable problems, I think, beyond just the usual like relational conflicts or leadership interactions or the problems of everyday life that they're having uh, to receive encourage for, encouragement for, uh, so on and so forth. So it's important that when we look at these next 16 verses in Ephesians chapter 4, we keep that in mind, we keep the, the, the tone shift in mind, and we realize Paul is, his theology isn't just informational. It's not just so that you can memorize facts about God. What's important about Ephesians chapter 4 in this tone shift is that every doctrine of the Christian faith for Paul is intensely, insanely practical. He wants us to actually apply this to our lives. 
He wants the work of Jesus in salvation and the grace that's offered to everyone to actually transform our lives. Paul has high expectations for us as Christians who follow Jesus and how we embrace grace and then how we apply it to our lives. And this is important in our day and age because there are all manners of things vying for our attention and our affection. Some of those things will form, actually all of those things form us. Only some of those things will transform us into the image and likeness and character of Jesus. But many of them, many of those things vying for our affection and our attention will actually deform us. Will take us away from who Jesus has created and meant for us to be, who he's trying to recreate us into. There are many things that we indulge in that are seemingly harmless, that take us away from Jesus. Uh, Mark Sayers, in his book, A Non-Anxious Presence, says this, In a networked world, even the most committed believer will consume only a fraction of the information and input from their church compared to what they consume via podcasts, YouTube, and Netflix. The digital network is now our primary uh, formational environment. Get that, the digital network that we inhabit, the social media platforms, the devices in our pocket at a, at a fingertips reach are, is now our primary formational environment. It shapes our opinions, values, and worldview. And as a network, as a, as, a, as a group of people that are connected either in person or digitally, as a network is swamped by chronic anxiety, it is marked by reactivity. Those within the system no longer act rationally, but rather high emotion becomes the dominant form of interaction. The system's focus is directed towards the most emotionally immature and reactive members. Those who are more mature and healthy begin to adapt their behavior to appease the most irrational and unhealthy. This creates a scenario where the most emotionally unhealthy and immature members in the system become the de facto leaders, shaping the emotional landscape with a focus on their negative behavior and what they see as negative behavior of others. The anxiety present envelops the vision of the organization within the system. So what this means for us. Now, he's not, he's not saying emotions are bad. We need to feel our feelings. We need to process them. Many times we need to heal uh, from the triggers and the things that sit behind those. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the chronic anxiety of our age, where people are set on edge constantly. Um, so so the, the anxiety that, that causes people uh, to become reactive and then the de facto, the Im- most immature in the network, in the system, in the group of people become the de facto leaders, it's like you know when people have like a panic attack, right? Or they have a, 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 some sort of anxiety episode and, and people like stop what they're doing and pay attention and try and help the person. That's good. That's a good thing, right? Now, when you live your day in and day out set on edge like that and you're the most tense and stressed and reactive and people kind of walk on eggshells around you, you and, and they avoid certain conversations and they back away, that's the unhealthy thing that he's talking about that happens in these systems, in these organizations, in these networks. We live in an age where you look online, and cancel culture is one example of this, where people can't get canceled for saying the wrong, having a bad moment. Maybe saying a terrible wrong thing and, and later trying to apologize, but then they're canceled because the reactive people in that network swarm. And they're not trying to correct, they're trying to cut off. They're trying to punish it's, it's, it's a retribution for a wrong behavior, and it's based in anxiety. It's based in this kind of reactivity. Now, 
this sounds uh, like kind of abstract. Just imagine what this happens, because you've been a part of it in a group of friends, in a family, or in a church. So this is serious business for Paul, where he is expecting Christian doctrine, the grace of God, to come into our lives to affect our mind, our will, and our emotions, to conform us to the character and nature of Jesus, to become people of love that aren't looking for retribution. They're not, they're not set on edge all the time because they've been so transformed by the grace of God. They've, they've surrendered to the movement of the Spirit in their lives. That's the idea that Paul has in mind as he makes this turn to apply the gospel and say, let's walk this out for real, practically. Let's really embrace this as a church community, okay? And so Ephesians is really important because, like I said, they're not ident- he's not identifying a singular problem that they're trying to correct. In a way, Ephesians actually acts as a roadmap or as a plan for all churches in all times for how to walk out the grace of Jesus. Eugene Peterson says this in his book, Practicing Re- Resurrection, Ephesians is an inside look at what is beneath and behind and within the church that we do see wherever and whenever it becomes visible. It provides our best access to what is involved in the formation of the church, not so much the way the church appears in our towns and our cities, but the essence that is behind the appearances, God's will, Christ's presence, the Holy Spirit's work. This is what we simply must get through our heads if we are going to understand and participate rightly in any church that we are a part of. This is the only writing in the New Testament that provides us with such a detailed and lively account of the inside and underground workings of the complex and various profusion of churches that we encounter and try to make sense of it. It's almost like, it's almost like you're in like New York City and there's the velvet rope and Paul goes, come here, I, got, I want to show you something. And he takes the rope and you get VIP treatment because you get to see what's on the inside and what's the underground and what only the extra special people get to see in God's mysterious working in and through the church. That's what this is like. So Paul is intent on pushing back on any kind of uh, rooted immaturity, any kind of stuntedness, any kind of excuse that would say, well, this is just who I am. This is how I've been created. This is just my personality. I'm an Enneagram 5. I'm an Enneagram 8. I'm an INT, whatever. Like, that's just who I am. Deal with it. Paul says, but for the grace of God. You don't have to be. So here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble. Man, how could he say that? But he does. Be completely humble. Now, don't use this on your spouses, okay? Um, This is for for us here. Um, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So rather than complaining, what, what you need to see here is rather than complaining about where, where he finds himself. He's a, he's a prisoner. He's, he's in a Roman prison, basically a hole in the ground. And he actually sees that 
as an affirmation of his apostolic calling to father churches and movements and networks. He sees it not as a reason to complain. It's kind of not like, you know, I don't know if anybody's mom has ever said, because I'm sure nobody here has ever said this, but like, hey, I gave birth to you so you could like do me this favor. It's not exactly like that. He's not like, I'm a prisoner, so, you know, you really need to live. He's like, I'm a prisoner. I've paid the price for this apostolic ministry that I've been called to. And so, in light of that, here's what I want you to walk worthy of this calling. Walk according to the worth that the call that's been put on your life, that called you into salvation and gave you a purpose, gave you a sense of meaning and direction and and vision for your life into eternity. Paul uh, is reminding this church that the way of Jesus is rooted in sacrifice. He's given up so much to preach the gospel to reach out to this church, to to keep pastoring other churches. He's given up so much. And it's with that kind of care and that kind of remembrance that he's saying, I want this for you as my children in the Lord. Okay, He's reminding them that the way of Jesus is rooted in self-giving love. It's, It's willing the best for the other, even when you can't experience it for yourself. And so he uses this authority to prod them on to, to four things. Humility, gentleness, patience, and reciprocity. Bearing with one another in love. And it's all for the sake of loving each other as Christ does them. And to stress this unity of the church that we're all called to embody, Paul uses the word one seven times. There's one body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, and father. So there are those that would charge Christianity with being a very narrow-minded or restrictive uh, faith. Uh, it's, it's a very narrow, restrictive belief system. You don't have any room because there's, there's just this way that you have to accept. And I want to say just on the contrary, it's clarifying. That's what Paul is doing by saying there's one faith, one hope, one Lord, one baptism. It's clarifying because we live in an age where you go to Hy-Vee. Have you been to Hy-Vee and, and looked for like ketchup or hot sauce recently and experience the decision fatigue the decision paralysis of like what's the best flavor what's the best brand what's the best price it's really clarifying to go to Hy-Vee and go I need hot sauce and Ben said the best hot sauce that I can get at Hy-Vee is what Iguanas. there you go I know what I'm doing after this I'm going to Hy-Vee and I'm getting one brand of hot sauce Right? That's helpful. So I don't have to spend 20 minutes going, oh man, I don't know what's going on in my life. And I have a hundred more of these decisions to make before I get out of the store. It's clarifying when it can be distilled down, when, when it can be given to us, not as a restrictive set of beliefs, as a clarifying and a freeing set of beliefs to say, do you know what God wants from you? It's to place your faith in Jesus, to believe on him who gave his life for you, and to follow him the rest of the days of your life on into eternity. That is so freeing to know exactly what the God of the universe wants from me and for me. It's freeing to live that way, to not have to cobble my own faith or figure out which God I have to appease this day, the next day, next week. It's one faith. It's one hope. It's one Lord. And I'm so thankful in our age where there's so much of this decision fatigue and paralysis to know it's that clear. It's that simple. It's not easy, 
but it's so simple. Jesus called children to him. To say to us that children can get this, and to get this, you need to become like children once again. Okay? So, now to address, because I I also know in our age, this age of of, of, uh, individualism, to to, uh, uh, focus so much on oneness and unity, that starts to feel like almost a straitjacket in a way. And so we don't overcorrect and just give up all of our rights and things that, that we give up all of our individuality and uniqueness. Paul suddenly talks about how all of us fit a unique purpose in the kingdom of God. He says this in, in verse 7. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is what it says. So, so again, for each of us, we have been given a gift. Everyone gets a gift. Everyone gets grace in their life. You are called to oneness in the church, but you're also called to uniqueness in the church as well. This is what it says. When he ascended, he, Jesus, ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions of the earth? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So, what Paul does here is he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 68, but he takes poetic license. In the original uh, uh, Hebrew language, in the original Old Testament, in Psalm 68, it, it talks about how God conquers. He's the, 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 the most high God, and he, he receives gifts from all the peoples. And Paul turns this, and he says, you know, when, when Christ conquered as a victor, he was a suffering servant. And what he did was he gave gifts instead of receiving gifts as any ancient king would when he conquers a land. Instead, Jesus turned it upside down. And instead of receiving gifts, he gave gifts to his people. He gave gifts to his church. And these gifts, it's as if he split up five ways his ministry to the church and gave these gifts, gave gave grace for these gifts to be in the church. And we all get a measure of of a portion of those gifts. So no one is the, Jesus isn't looking for rock stars or superstars. He is the superstar. He's not looking for any, any people like that. So we all get to participate in this by receiving grace from him to reflect a portion of his ministry so that the church is unified and matured, okay? So what he does is he gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Apostles, now I'll, I'll say this. Um, the Western church is mostly geared to the pastoral or shepherding uh, ministry and the teaching ministry. And what we've done is we've ignored three-fifths of the ministry of Jesus, three-fifths of the grace that Jesus has released by and large. There's, there, we, we give some apportionment to uh, evangelists. They're kind of the people that travel a lot and they're not really rooted anywhere. We value highly pastors and teachers because they stay, and they, they care for us, and they teach us. We give titles such as pastor. That's kind of our uniform title for everyone who is in church leadership, who, who teaches regularly, is a pastor. We've ignored, by and large, in the Western church, much, at least two-fifths, if not three-fifths, of this grace that God has given to His church for unity and maturity. Hence, 
I mean, can you just see where we're at right now and how we, we might be missing some grace? Now, here's what I'll say. Don't get nervous when I say that um, apostolic people and prophetic people and evangelistic people are still out there ministering. It's true, but what I don't mean is they're not writing scripture and they're not like, thus saith the Lord, I call down fire on your city. That's, that's not it. In fact, if you see someone who says, I'm an apostle, here's my business card, I'm a prophet, here's my business card, you have my permission to raise your eyebrow like the rock does, you know, and go, yeah, right, we'll see about that, right? What I mean is that these ministries are very active still. We may not recognize them fully, but they're still fully active by the grace of Jesus. Apostles push onward. They, they push us to the next horizon. They, they think about the next possibility, what could be for the kingdom of God. Prophets push us upward, revealing God's heart to us, especially to recognize how we may contribute to the injustices of the world. Evangelists push us outward, reminding us to care for those not yet in the family of God. Pastors or shepherds, they push inward. They help us cultivate healthy hearts and robust community. Teachers push us downward, encouraging us to continue mining for the truth in the scripture. Okay? Alan Hirsch says this in his book, 5Q, uh, the, uh, Reactivating the Original Intelligence and Capacity of the Body of Christ. In relation to the dynamic, interconnected, and mutuality of the body, we are not only required to express our own gifting, we are also required to find a way to equip others to do what we have been gifted to do. For example, apostles are to equip the body to function, function apostolically. Prophets are to equip the body to function prophetically, and so on down the line. There's therefore a two-dimensional response required here, that God's people express a calling as well as equip others. Responding to the grace that is given to each of us in the apest, and I, I hate that term, it's apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, it just sounds, it's a terrible acronym, but we're going to go with it, because uh, I didn't write the book. So, the, in the apest, moves us beyond mere self-expression into a dynamic, re, uh, reciprocal process of training, where each one of us becomes both a giver and a receiver, a leader and a follower, we can think of the five full giftings as five systems of a healthy church. Just as our body has ten, I've heard it, eight or ten major systems in your own body, in our body, uh, where those all work together, right? Your skeletal system, your musculature system, your nervous system, your endocrine system, all those systems work together to keep at stasis. There's a homeostasis that it works to keep us at, so we're healthy and we're strong and we grow and we do the things that we need to do, Right? If any of the systems in our body is out of whack, we are at dis-ease. It's literally disease if we're out of whack in any of those systems. Traditionally, like I said, in the Western church, we focused on the pastoral gifts and the teaching gifts. We kind of nod to the evangelistic gifts, and we completely ignore, by and large, the apostolic and prophetically gifted among us. And so it's, it's, there's... If you look at the Western church and you compare it especially to the three, uh, uh, the third world church where they're planting churches and, and they even see like healings and other miracles happen, it's because they've activated men and women to all five folds of all of those ministries in the church and they have healthy functioning bodies. Yeah, they still have problems. These, the grace of God does not uh, like, like invalidate life issues, church conflict, leadership decisions, life decisions, any of that. But, Jesus gives grace for all of that in healthy, dynamic churches where these ministries are empowered. 
and they're, they're provided a, a way to move forward, okay? Um, Paul tells us when these ministries work together, we will grow together so we become mature, representing Jesus holistically to each other and others out in the world. And I, I love what John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard Movement, said. He said, in God's kingdom, everyone gets to play. In God's kingdom, there's no spectators. There's people leading and following, and it's oftentimes reversed, back and forth. We all have something to receive from one another, and we all have something to give to one another. In God's kingdom, in God's family, everyone gets a gift, everyone gets to play. So if you, man, honestly, can I, if you're bored with spectator Christianity, it may be that you have yet to be activated into uh, uh, one of these, these ministries. God has a call on your life. We talked uh, a lot about this in Ephesians chapter 1. God has a call. You may not ever get the title of a pastor, but you may have a pastoral heart, and we need you. Someone may never recognize you as a Bible teacher, but I just bet there's lots of us that have lots to teach each other about God, about your experience about your understanding of Scripture, encounters that you've had with God where He's opened up something deep and mysterious, and you could, you could tell us and somebody could get it in a moment. There may be some sitting here that are apostolically gifted, and you have found more freedom starting businesses in the marketplace because you felt shackled and bound in the church when you said, what if we do this? What if we could do that? And you've heard no. No, we got this. We, we pay the pastors to do this. We don't need your ministry ideas. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. If we're going to become a healthy, functioning church, and, you know, there's, there's, when you say that, it's like, oh, we're not healthy? Yes and no. Why? Well, I'm one of the pastors, and I'm yes and no healthy right now, right? I pastor you all, and you're yes and no healthy right now, right? So we're all on the journey there's no arrival until eternity. We need all hands on deck. We need all ministries represented. We need to risk some things. Uh, John Wimber also said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K, by the way. Are we doing okay? <laughs> uh, I love you all. We're friends. I'm not a heretic, I promise. Um, thank you. I will. We need all hands on deck. Everyone gets to play. And if you're bored... Maybe your gift has been in your pocket. Maybe you've been afraid to say, I think I have something to offer here, okay? So, Paul continues in, in verse 14, and very much a continuation of this thought that we're in. Then, when, when the, uh, these systems are active in a church, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So when we put all three of these, these previous verses together, here's what Paul is saying. A healthy church where these ministries are represented and, and active... The body of Christ is equipped, 
is brought to perfection and completed. The body of Christ is growing into maturity. We can attain the fullness of Christ. We may in an embodied way live out the unity described in verses 1 through 6, the patience and gentleness and humility and reciprocity of Christ. We might not be given to the theological faddishness or deception in our world. We might grow up into Christ, our head. We will be rightly ordered in our relationship to our head and therefore to each other as his body. So here's how I'd like to put this. Here's how I want you to imagine this. Uh, Imagine being the parent of a young adult where your influence in their life has changed. It used to be more top-down, like directive, do this, don't do that. Now as a young adult, as a teenager, maybe leaving the house for the first time, either you've been through this or you have gone through this at some point if, if you're an adult. Imagine your influence has changed and you're watching that relationship change where you still get to speak into it, but when you're welcomed, not because you have the same authority as you once have. You love your child dearly, but you can't be directive. You can't give orders anymore. You provide supportive care. Your child now grown, now is able to make life-altering decisions on their own. And you're all but helpless to watch as their lives unfold in front of them and in front of you. Uh, When they've come to a place where they need to make a huge decision, there's a feeling of helplessness that settles in because you know you have to hold your tongue. You can't say everything that you're thinking. You see the different paths unfold in front of them, not because you know the future perfectly, but because you've stumbled and fallen along some of those similar paths. You've slipped a time or two yourself. Imagine as you see them weigh and doubt and discern what happens next. And at last, they choose the the path that fits. There's a celebration that happens inside you. They choose the path that fits both all the values, all the love, that you've given them in, in their upbringing, they choose that one to live as a reflection of your family values and the values that they've internalized. There's a, there's a celebration, although it's internal. You can't let them see that you're super excited that they chose the right path. That, that's what God wants. Mothers and fathers in the church with gifts to offer, not directively to other people to say, do this, don't do that. There may be times, but it's rare. It's few and far between. But it's supportive care as people are nurtured, as they're taught and trained, as they're given permission to dream and to risk, to know God's voice and his presence for themselves. We need mothers and fathers to help raise up spiritual children as a part of a healthy local church in the name of Jesus. So it is a tremendous reality that God wants to empower us to build each other up and to spread his message in our city, in our region, and beyond. And while freeing us to operate optimally according to our design when we step into the grace of these giftings, it also guards us against two errors that I want to briefly mention. Okay? The first error is a narcissistic tendency to say about ourselves, of course God wants to use me. I mean, look at me. I mean, have you, have you seen me? speak to people like I got them they're in the palm of my hand of course God wants to use me in his church I have so much to offer I'm so good leading people they do exactly what I tell them to do the grace of Jesus corrects this narcissistic tendency by reminding us what Jesus said in Luke 10 verse 17 the 72 he empowered them for miracles 
casting out demons, they returned and with joy they said, Lord, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Aren't we great? We can use your name and it's like a fire extinguisher. It's amazing. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, when Jesus says, but, he says, however, you can duck, okay? However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. All of that is going to fade away. Don't rejoice at that. That's so temporary. That's a momentary gleaning of power that was borrowed from me in the first place. But rejoice, rejoice that you'll be with me in eternity. It's the grace of Jesus that reminds us that whatever inadequacies we're trying to cover for or however we're trying to prove ourselves by lifting ourselves up and think that we can make a name for ourselves borrowing his name, it's the grace of Jesus that challenges that and says, you're not that great. Like, I love you, but you need to sit down and learn some humility. That's what the grace of Jesus is, is for in informing our character as he releases grace for giftings in our lives. Jesus gives us humility. God being self-sufficient doesn't need us at all. If he can make rocks speak, he doesn't need me. He's just loaning me a little bit of grace. Why? To help, to serve, to give away. That's what it's for. Okay? The second error is the self-flagellating tendency to say about ourselves, no, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. I have nothing good to offer. Everything I turn uh, touches turns to stone. God could never want me or use me. I'm just going to sit in the back. I'm just going to sit on, I'm just going to let everybody else who's better do, do the work. And with that, we're reminded, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8, Paul pleads to Jesus. Three times I, I pleaded with the Lord to take the, this, he had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is, but he had this thing that constantly like, like hindered him. But he, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Jesus' grace is sufficient for all of us in all of our brokenness, in all of our past sin, all of our present, all of our future sin. Jesus' grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Your weakness does not disqualify you because it, it doesn't qualify anybody else. Their, their strength doesn't qualify anybody else. So it's the grace of Jesus that lifts us up, gets our eyes and our attention off ourselves, what we lack, what we don't have, what everybody else does better. This is supernatural grace. He doesn't need your natural talents. It's not like you bring it to a nine and he gets that little bit over the edge to a ten. It's like it's all him through and through. We just say yes. We just show up. Okay? To understand this gives us confidence that God, being that he is loving and relational, while he doesn't need us, he desires us deeply. And he desires our partnership. So we, t we hold these two things in tension. God doesn't need us, but he wants us. God could do it all himself, but he has chosen to invite us in. I mean, 
Do you, do you know what it's like to do, do something super? Well, of course you do. You know what it's like unloading the dishwasher and then you're trying to teach your sons how to do it? You guys are amazing right now. You used to not be, okay? I love you so much. But you know how it is, right? It's like, okay, guys, go unload the dishwasher. Has anybody seen the measuring cup? Are the measuring cups in the house anymore? I don't know where they got put away to, right? It takes time and patience and effort to teach someone how to do. God doesn't need us for anything, but he has invited us relationally into partnership. And he has the patience and the care and the love to say, I'll teach you how to do this. And he's given us each other to teach each other to have that same kind of love and care and patience together. So we hold those two things God together. God doesn't need us, but he desires us deeply. Tim Keller said it famously like this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That is the gospel, and that is the gospel for us, even as we continue to follow Jesus, that he loves us and he wants us. So, in conclusion, uh, and I want to invite the worship team to start coming up. Um... Why don't you stand with me? I love every week to give you a practical, like, what do I do with this? How do I implement this? So I just want to give you a question in two parts. Where is God highlighting a place to receive input and an opportunity to support someone else? Where is God highlighting to me where I need to go find someone and receive a mentorship? Someone to speak into my life. Someone, because I, I respect them and I, I, I want to do what they do well. What conversation do you need to have soon? And then secondly, where? Where am I looking to see for an opportunity to mentor and develop someone else? What can I give away? Can I, maybe it's just a meal, a cup of coffee where I get to know someone. That's still giving your time and your attention to someone. It's very valuable. How is God asking you to do that this week? Okay? So we're going to transition into a time now of the Lord's Supper. So it's a time where we pause to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus for all of us. During his last meal with his closest friends, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my, my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup, a cup of wine, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, the new promise that I make to you. And so we, every week for the last several months, have been pausing to reflect and participate in communion together. Um, now, what I will say is we, this is a family Sunday, so we have kids here. And so I'll also say we practice an open table, which means all that we ask is the, that you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus and that you're in a right relationship, like you're, you're in community and in a, in a right heart with other people around you. And so parents, it's up to your discretion. If it's uh, if, if it makes sense to you that you know your, your children's spiritual journey and they're ready to take communion, it's here and it's available. If you need to wait and, and talk to them about Jesus, that's totally cool too. Uh, we'll, we'll wait for you to do that and we'll be here when you're ready. So with that, I'm going to invite my son John up. He's going to do something um, special for me. Can I get this mic on, please? So um, during communion, hi, come on up, John. Say Hi. Hi. <laughs> Grab that. Um, so every week we have, but right before we do communion together, we've been le- reading the Lord's Prayer. 
And so John and I thought it would be a good idea to change up the translation. This is from the Jesus Storybook Bible. We're going to read this together. So it's going to sound a little bit different. It's, it's still the heart behind the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and so we're just going to celebrate that. Kids, kids in the room, kids at home, I need you to help us, okay? John's going to read this. The words are up here. I want you to read along with us, okay? And I, I really want to hear you. Some of these adults really need encouragement to, like, read this loudly, and they're, they're going to need you to, to help them with that. Does that sound good? Okay, let's read this together. Hello, Daddy. We want to know you and be close to you. Please show us how. Make everything in the world right again. And in our hearts, too. Do what is best, just like what you do in heaven. And please do it down here, too. Please give us everything we need today. Forgive us for doing wrong, for hurting you. Forgive us for as we forgive other people when they hurt us. Rescue us. We need you. We don't want to keep running and hiding from you. Keep us safe from our enemies. You're strong, God. You can do whatever you want. You are in charge, now and forever and for always. We think you're great. Amen. Yes, we do. Amen. Amen. Thank you, kids. Amen. Thank you, John. That was awesome, bud.